0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N.
1: And I'm Kyle. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2.
0: Now, today we have two really interesting perspectives that we're going to be looking at. It's kind of funny. We're looking at kind of like heaven and hell in a lot of ways. Today we're going to be looking at Hellions number 8 kind of a preview of Eternals number one by getting a little bit of the background and context on the Eternals as well as including an amazing panel from Exes for Podcast History this past year at New York Comic Con into the Metaverse online experience. Now, first up is Hellions. Kyle, this book kind of came out of nowhere. I think the first issue dropped before COVID, and then we had that huge break. Mm -hmm. Was it yes or no you just said?
1: I said, yep, yes.
0: Oh, okay. I thought you said no, and I was like, oh, (laughs)
1: all right.
0: Sure okay yeah so the first issue dropped before COVID then there was this huge break and it was kind of like what's going on how have you been enjoying Hellions I mean I know you're in this next segment but how have you been enjoying Hellions?
1: Oh man it has been a roller coaster it's it's been crazy and amazing and I've come to love characters that I've never thought that I would ever ever enjoy and wow I, I it's it's such a fun book you know
0: I agree, because I definitely spent a good 20 years saying that Nanny and Orphan Make were one of the silliest things about the 1980s, and they're turning into one of the coolest things about X-Men in the 2020s. So in this next segment, we have Maddie, Kyle, Drew, and Nathan coming together to talk about the intricacies of Helgen's number eight and the sort of fascinating way this both repaints and choreographs characters for the future. We hope you guys enjoy. Enjoy.
2: Enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back to another exciting episode of Axis for Podcasts as part of the Cage Club family. My name is Maddie, and as always, you can find me over on Instagram at Man and over on Twitter at BaselyCovetous. And today I have such a handsome assemblage. ...of fine folks to help me cover this issue of Hellions number 8. With me today, of course, is
3: Kyle.
1: Hey everyone, you can find me, as always, on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, D-R-A-N-T-I-S 82 Also with us is Nathan... Hey,
4: everybody. You can find me online at uh, Twitter and Instagram at DazzlerAOA. DazzlerAOA.
5: Also, we have Drew with us. Hey, I'm Drew. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Drucifer3, D R E W S I P H E R 3. Beautiful. And
2: as always, we are back today to cover another current issue of The Reign of X. Today, we will be covering New Friends, Old Enemies, Hellions Number Eight, written by Zeb Wells, with art by Stephen Segovia, colors by David Curiel, letters by VC's Ariana Mayer, and design by Tom Muller. Confronted by Cameron Hodge, the Hellions pull together to take on an armada of anti mutant machines of the organization The Right. Wild Child and Nanny waste no time in carrying out their original mission, reassessing the cradle, Nanny's ship, and the key to reuniting the currently in stasis orphan maker with his much needed armor. Empath reveals to Hodge that he is no more than a machine representative of the Hodge mine. Quan and Great Kuro get emotionally intimate and nanny finds and keeps a potentially devastating secret so how do we all feel about hellions number eight we are now two issues removed from ten of swords so why don't we start there how do we feel now about the progression of Hellions moving past the events of Ten of Swords? I
4: I've, I really feel it's getting back into the swing of things. I think last issue was too much of a bridge issue, but I think with this, especially with the way Nanny and Wild Child just jumped right into it when the villain was doing his monologue, I think they were just like, "Hey, we're back! Bam, we're doing our thing."
5: I mean, it's that's also kind of the natural progression of like what should be happening after a major event, right? Like we do kind of want that bridge to be like they were on Amen for a while. And now, like, how do we get out of that? How do we, like, it's just, like, a good, like, plot thing, right? Like, we need to get out of that into something new, into the next era.
2: Kyle, what do you think?
1: I'm enjoying the chaos. Um, (laughs) 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 I, there's, there's something about this team that makes chaos incredibly enjoyable and fun and it's gotten us past that weirdness from ten of swords and into something that i'm looking forward to reading again
4: i feel very much the same way uh, you know what's crazy i just realized this day like when i was pouring over notes this book reads exactly like savage avengers i don't know if any of you guys are reading savage avengers but it's just like this fun like piece of
1: like blood action bam go kind of stuff Blood yeah, action, damn go! I I can see that comparison definitely. I love
2: that. I've been I've been catching up with Savage Avengers via our coverage. Actually, I myself have not gotten my hands on those books, but I am very excited to go back now in retrospect and partake in what the pod is affectionately called the bucket of blood. Yes. I, will, I will say <laughs> there is decidedly less blood in in Hellions, though I'm sure not by very much. I think uh, to piggyback off of. Drew's statement. The the idea that this is what a post-crossover universe should look like, something with, you know, motion and depth. I feel like with our new releases in The Reign of X, Sword Number One took this podcast by storm. We were enthralled with the 22 pages of Sword Number 1. It was exactly, in my opinion, how you move past a crossover. You establish a new status quo, you establish a new locale, and you leave it for the reader to be invested enough to stay tuned while you fill in the blanks. You don't hit them with some ham-handed origin. You just jump right out of the gate, swing it. And I feel like my hesitation towards the current books, or rather the books that are coming over from Dawn of X into the Reign of X, I was afraid that that momentum wouldn't transition very much the same way. How do you all feel now, eight issues into tallies? You think we're uh, we're moving along at a brisk pace?
5: Uh, I think it's actually it's paced pretty pretty decently. Like we had that good section at the beginning with uh, Madeline Fire, all that stuff. Then we had the Store stuff, which was like, as like I agree with you guys, um, that I did like the storyline with X of Swords, but I don't think that it necessarily belonged, but it like it wasn't essential, but it was fun. And then we're into Cameron Hodge.
6: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cameron
2: Hodge. Mm. You know, and in, in speaking of Cameron Hodge, you know, I, I sat up late last night pouring over my notes and drafting a couple of loose talking points. And one of them that came to mind was probably one of the weirder ones, and it was definitely, you know, symptomatic of being one in the morning. So I'm just going to pose <laughs> it to you all as is. In an uh, in an exchange with Cameron Hodges, anti-mutant robots, Psylocke is scanned as having quote the difference between her mutant and human genome within a margin of error which got me thinking. Do we think there's a chance that Quanin is not a mutant after all? That perhaps mm. there's a trace of Betsy's mutant genome that remains in Quanin's DNA and discri- disguises her true state from the island telepaths?
1: I've been thinking that as well. There was discussion previously about of- about uh Kwanin's abilities and how she had kind of co-opted uh Betsy's butterfly abilities huh. the the little yeah. um the power signature the power yeah, signature, the power signature yeah. and the more that we were seeing of her we're not really seeing her utilize her the abilities that that we had always tied to Psylocke she's she's just using a sword a normal sword now she doesn't she's not using the uh the psychic sword and she didn't even use her psychic abilities in this yeah I'm I'm, I'm flipping through
5: it I'm flipping through it right now and she does not use her abilities at all in it that I can see
4: I I always thought Quanon's abilities were that just that she was a really really low level like Empath almost telepath. Um, and I know obviously she got a power upgrade when her and Betsy I don't know merged, I guess you would call it. But, um, I,
2: I know her, her mutant ability was always a very low level one. Well, I, I will say merged is a much kinder way of saying having your body outright stolen. Right. Um,
4: so
7: yeah.
2: <laughs> in the interest of being kind to everybody's favorite Captain Britain, Betsy, uh, we will say the bodies were merged. And I, so this is good, good. I'm so glad that, that I have somebody or, or a collection of somebody's on board because if this turns out to be true, I am never going to let this go. But if it, turn, <laughs> if it turns out to be fake, I am going to just say, well, it was my most crackpot theory to date. It's actually, as we were discussing last evening, Nathan, you were a part of this. We were covering some of the contributions of Chris Claremont, his first 18 issues, roughly, of Excalibur in 1988. The Sword is Drawn collection. And there was a point brought up that Chris Claremont frequently volleys between comics are the most serious medium for art and comics are just funny books. So this is my funny books or not. I'm very excited to see how this uh, how this shapes up. So is Quanin anybody's favorite? We have a tremendous cast here. You know, it doesn't feel like it. But we have a cast of seven, one currently in remission. Who, if you had to pick a favorite, eight issues in, who is it? Hands down. Nanny. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, stand, I stand that egg.
4: Oh my God. I, you know what? See, Nanny and Orphan Maker were the ones I was like, why? are they bringing in some campy x factor villains from the 80s and like oh my god what is this but i absolutely love them and just the way nanny stands up to
2: sinister oh yes oh she had she had so many good quotes um you know how many how many orphans will it make when i finally get my hands on you talking about oh just scathing scathing yeah Drew, who are you I don't know how much of Hellions you've been reading. I imagine you've been reading since issue one. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. But if 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 this issue alone, who was your
5: favorite? I yeah, I gotta say it, Nanny and Wild Childs. Nanny probably takes the cake though. When this book was first like announced, and I saw her on the cover, like I haven't read anything with her in it. So I, the lipstick and the, the like, gloves. I as like living. I don't even know her, but I live.
2: <laughs> um. <laughs> oh, so good. All right, I'll pick a,
5: pick a favorite.
1: Oh, geez. I'm really struggling right now because before her death during Ten of Swords, I was definitely going to say nanny but her resurrection has really scared me Mm -hmm. and it's it's I'm really uncomfortable with her now. Um, mm-hmm. not not in a bad way, but it's made me question how she's going to fit into the group as things progress. And because of that, I'm kind of I, I'm really surprised that I'm gonna say this. I'm kind of leaning towards havoc now. Just oh, the way boy. that he, yeah, just the way that he's been struggling with all of these moral issues that he's witnessed witnessing as he's um dealing with this these things with madeline and robots it's 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 been an interesting journey for him i think for me
4: i have to give him credit for going around Krakoa and just talking about how they won't bring maddie back as they mentioned in new mutants <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: it's devastating it, it really is but to to flip back to nanny for a moment well first off uh, I'm going to pick my my personal favorite of Hellions. And I feel like it's going to be a little bit of an unpopular pick, but with only seven options, I mean, and nobody's choosing Sinister. So <laughs> uh, I would say my favorite is probably Grey Crow. And mm. I tell you why. In, you know, I, I've said before that I, when we cover issues for this podcast, I tend to read them two or three times just for one episode, because my retention is that of a goldfish. But... In thinking back on hellions and really reflecting on what I've internalized from hellions issue one with the morlocks confronting gray crow and him being given no choice but to defend himself and then for him to take the sole blame in a quiet council meeting, and quietly accept his fate being rehabilitated with the Hellions now because of an action that wasn't entirely his fault. Something about that resonated with me. Something about that was, because I've read a little bit of his time as Scalp Hunter, and the possibility for a redemption here is so great. You know, I'm just, if anything, I'm just waiting for the redemption to really hit its stride. In looking at the potentially unstable progression of Wild Child and Nanny, post-resurrection, between Between us, who do you all figure is running the risk of first, quote, losing their Iraqi edge?
5: I would say it would make most sense for Wild Child to lose. Yeah. That's already part of him. So for him to break first, you're still kind of retaining that element of him, but changing it in a way, you know, like that characteristic. Yeah, yeah, he brought
4: through so many changes, especially way back when in Alpha Flight when he became Wild Heart. Like he was like he was like centered, like confident, he was intelligent. And like I just think that's part of his character
2: is to change.
1: I agree. I definitely think that Wild Child's gonna be the uh the one to to break from that first.
2: I grappled with this myself for a little while, and I feel like I agreed with all of you. Wild Child is the most likely candidate because losing control is part of what he does. Losing Control is how we first saw his character defined in two issues of this run before Ten of Mm. Swords Mm. in two and three. Uh, the end of issue two into the issue three until Quan and basically Big Daddy domed him which was so hot um, <laughs> real real into that but I feel like in, in looking at the the changes that they've undergone since their resurrection post Ten of Swords I feel like that might be one of the traits that the sharp honing of this resurrection has omitted from his character I feel like he seems very much in control he seems very much to have re- gained his agency in a sense so I'm going to say personally I think it's Nanny and I don't exactly think she's going to lose her marbles but I do think as we see later in this issue and as we'll cover later in this episode her decision making skills might put everybody at a really great risk. A good point.
1: Okay yeah yeah I, I can yeah, I, I can see that yeah. So hmm. if
2: we have to pick like second tier favorites who would we rather talk about Empath or Alex?
5: Oh Alex, <laughs> Alex <laughs> Tom, Yeah Alex he wasn't, like, empath wasn't really in, in the issue.
2: He No, you know what? I will I will give him credit, and we will come back to this in a minute. I did think that his exchange with Cameron Hodge was the defining moment for him so far
5: in eight issues outside of his many deaths. It's funny, because he's like, I can't do shit in this situation, and books it, but he's the one who ends up saving the situation in the end.
2: <laughs> well, you know what? It It, it seems like we're going to go empath first, because that leads me so beautifully into something I wanted to ask you all with Two resurrections and three deaths under his belt in eight issues. Empath is clearly shaping up to be the Quentin Choir of his team book. <laughs> That's exactly what's in my notes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a sad fact, but it's the reality we're living in. So that said, do you think it is more likely that we will see a redemption of Empath moving forward? Or will cowardice and a lack of resilience define his character? Because we got Ooh. both this issue. Yeah, I don't I think cowardice because I don't think
4: there's he has any reason to not be a coward a coward now because like you can just get resurrected. So like why why would he need to change? I got that.
1: Yeah, I, I don't see him uh stepping into a position of of action i i definitely see him not wanting to redeem himself he the last time he was resurrected he was pretty vocal <laughs> 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 so yeah i i I really don't think that he's, he's going to take this seriously and learn from it. Hmm.
2: Okay. I can definitely, I can definitely see why you would say that. Not you specifically. I'm not saying I can definitely see why Kyle would say that. <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely see why you would say that. Uh, Drew, what are your, what's your hot take?
5: Um. Yeah, I agree with what everyone else said.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, once again, I'm in a position where I feel like this is, this is a toss-up. Once again, Hellion's number eight gave us both of these sides of Empath. You know, as pointed out before, his first reaction was, there's nothing that I can do here, so I'm just going to book it. I'm just straight up out. And then he ends up being the one to bring down Cameron Hodge. Now, was he the one to bring down the Hodge mind? No. But did he stop the the Trumpian figure in front of the Hodge <laughs> mind? For sure. So in that way, I wish we were all a little bit Empath. True. <laughs> But okay. I, I I personally could not could not be controlled. Like I I feel, I think often you know because we're all comic nerds. That's literally what we do. That is literally why we carve this time out on a Sunday to record because we're all big fucking nerds <laughs> with nothing better to do than just wax True. about our favorite comics. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. But you know that said, I geez man, I I think that I think it could really go either way at this point but i think i think all will be you know left left to be determined hopefully in issue number 9 but to move on I and this is a little bit divisive. I I'm I'm just gonna call it like I see it. They're sharing two whole pages alone together at one point. Quanin and Grey Crow seem awfully close lately. Do we collectively stand the development of a psychro relationship?
5: No. Oh come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um okay, here's the thing is that Quan is like we're just getting to know who she is, like post her, her separation with Betsy. So let's like, so I kind of, I'm like, I, this is, mine's all personal. The reason why I don't want her to be with him um, because I actually don't really know Quanin by herself. So I kind of just wanted to like, get to know like what she's going to do by herself, set her up as a character by herself first before we really get into her into relationships and and that kind of stuff.
2: So you're saying no rebounds, give me single empowered Quanin. don't need no man, don't need no (laughs) body
5: swap, just living her best life. Exactly, and like, I okay. think that's kind of who she should be as a character post, like, like in this era. I just feel like that's not what she's about. You know, she's a like almost like a Cyclops esque character. You know, she's like leading the teams, but like with you know that like Japanese edge. I get that. I
1: really do. Kyle and Nathan duke it out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Fight! I, Kyle, come on. <laughs> okay. 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 Uh, I I definitely agree with Drew. I really don't need to see Quad In a romantic relationship at this point i more want to see her being herself Mm -hmm. and i think a large part of that is her willing to make the hard decisions so that the people around her don't have to and she's willing to take the stuff that could potentially corrupt her, her own soul so that they don't have to do it themselves
5: yeah. she has other things to be worrying about besides like that kind of yeah. stuff she, i think her story is more going in the direction with her daughter and like the whole sinister kind of aspect of it like i think she's she's the team leader right so she's her first storyline was with wild child and like trying to rehabilitate him Well, he's kind of been rehabilitated, not really by her, but, you know, he's better-ish, as (laughs) she can tell. So now we're moving on to the next one we got to fix, which I guess is yeah. going to be Graco.
4: I, I kind of think, kind of like piggybacking on what you guys were all saying, not only do we need to get to know who Quanin is, but I, I think right now Quanin needs to learn who Quanin is before she throws herself into a relationship. And yeah, she's got her daughter to worry about, and she's got this team leading. I, I think she really just needs to be herself before she can try to be with somebody. Although it, it's not a bad ship, though. I mean, when they're
2: in the right place, I could I could go for it. <laughs> (laughs) I guess, fine, I'll be Team Toxic Codependency on my own, guys. That's That's, that's quite all right. uh, I'm getting a little tired of you all. No, I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) uh, Uh Oh... No, you know I love you all dearly. Uh no, I think that I think that there is a lot of merit to the potentiality for a relationship to bloom between Quanin and Grey Crow. And I think a lot of it has to do with their similarities and their differences, and the similarities and their differences. Uh Quanin, of course, is just now coming into her own autonomy and agency. She has not had a body for decades of publication, and she we jump into Fallen Angels with the reveal that she is a strange. From her daughter, and that is clearly something that Sinister is pulling the strings on. She clearly has bigger things uh in the in the peripheral, you know, definitely bigger things to be focused on. But I feel like Grey Crow is a really fascinating foil for her. Grey Crow has never been somebody other than Grey Crow, though he has been cloned repeatedly ad nauseum. He is he is probably at this point so far removed from his own idea of who he is, even if he has an idea of who he is anymore, And as we see in this issue, he believes in his quest to become a better person. He believes that it's his role to do what he does best, which is being the killer, being the person to put the final bullet in, being the person to say, no, Quan, I'm going to shut down the Hodge Mine. You don't have to be the killer today. I'll do it. And she flips it on its head and says, no, you don't have to be the one today. I'll do this. You you don't have to hide from me. I see you. And I feel like maybe that just resonated with me because I personally found my other half in a period of soul searching and harder times where I felt that I specifically needed to be this archetype that I had set up for myself. And it really took an outside influence to say, no, you are, you are not all that is defined by X, Y, and Z. You have the capability to be more. And I feel like given that neither of these characters have a wealth Of friends or a wealthy social life, I feel like that sort of external influence, that positive, nurturing energy can only come from somewhere. And if you're not getting it from your friends and you don't have family and you very much feel alone, why not find somebody else who feels alone to be alone together? Mm -hmm. Ooh, okay. Wow. You might have changed my mind on the way I think about that. All right. That's good. I
4: yeah, mean, right.
5: what what we could do is meld the two together. So have them starting out not dating, but maybe add in like a little bit of flirtation, like that kind of stuff. And then... Expand on it later once Psylocke has you know resolved all of her issues. I mean, Agreed. it's Krakoa. Cr-
4: oh, uh, you don't do flirtation.
2: You just do
5: whippets. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do I
4: put this? Not crass, but you, you,
2: I, I thought I thought you said you just do whippets, and I was like, yes, we're doing whippets on Krakoa. We, we've got Krakoa aerosol
6: tanks. <laughs> oh, I
2: love it. <laughs> No, I, I love that. And, and I, I will say, you know, to, to backpedal a little bit on my stance here between Quan and Raygro, I don't want to see this come about immediately. I would much rather see it grow organically and in my heart of hearts, I hope that Steven Segovia stays on this book for at least the duration of Zeb Wells' tenure because I think the two of them working together is nearly as synergistic as the work we see on X Factor between Leah Williams and David Baldeon. The way that the Dokken and Aurora relationship has grabbed everybody's heart so quickly with so little content, I feel like there is so much room for Steven Segovia to grow grow in drawing these close personal intimate slice of life moments between the bloody beat up oh my god yeah
6: alex now it's alex time <laughs> we don't talk about alex
2: and this was a lazy song this was a lazy song i um, love the lazy song but it was Great. it was all for you and now, now nathan and i i want to collab on something because look listen to those pipes baby <laughs> um so Alex sure has a rough emotional go of things lately, as we brought up before, uh, you know, from being denied a chance at romantic happiness to watching a robot he helped communicate empathy with figuratively die in front of him. His short time with the Hellions has been anathemic to his recovery. Do we feel like Alex really stands a chance at fully recovering? <sighs>
1: uh. <laughs> and, and, okay,
2: so let's 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 <laughs> let's ease the transition here for a moment. We're not saying that he will be fully mentally recovered from the years of scar. But do we think that there is a chance that Havoc can become rehabilitated?
4: I I think for him to become rehabilitated, he needs to acknowledge the darkness that he doesn't want to acknowledge. And I think that's an important step that he hasn't taken yet.
5: Yeah. And I mean, like, he's the only one, like, other than Quan and on the team, who's been like both a good guy and a bad guy, like he's you know on the cusp of like he's been a part of the X Men and that right, so he's the only one who's really on the cusp of like really making that cha- that change back to a good guy. So like you know what I mean? It's it's more surprising for like Wild Child to become a like I guess not really a good guy, but a uh, better than what they were guy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So Okay, alrighty, Cal. So I have a feeling that the powers that be are kind of working against Havoc's um rehabilitation. Mm. It feels like they keep putting him into situations where he is uh feeling conflicted by the decisions that Krakoa is making. Or the Quiet Council is making. And I, I have a feeling that all of this is going to eventually put him over the, the tipping point Ooh. and, and uh, put him against Krakoa. Hmm.
2: Really? So that actually brings me to my follow-up, which was uh, Gone From View. Apparently. No, my follow-up is, do we feel that there's a chance that a later volume can
5: see Alex as the team's enemy in some capacity?
2: Mm-hmm. So Kyle, Kyle says sure.
5: Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. It might, that maybe even like this is kind of a stupid idea. I don't know, but like I could see that the the book even like turning that way because you have like Alex and then Wild Child and Nanny probably o- orphan maker too. Yeah, you know what I, you know what I mean. You, you yeah. really only have three other characters who are like. Or two other characters? No, three, three, three. So well,
1: I mean, Sinister is also kind of doing his own thing. (laughs) I I didn't even consider
5: Sinister, but like, I guess Empath is also kind of like he could turn at any second.
2: Yeah. No. Wow. Uh,
4: I I don't know. I have a hard time letting go of Uncanny Avengers, Alex, which I kind of loved, even though they made some questionable choices, and that like I. Kind of wish they could just let him go back to that and be with the Wasp, which I know weird, weird relationship, but I really dug it though. So. Oh. Uh, but I could easily see them setting up Alex to definitely go rogue and against the team, especially after the Smiley's.
2: Oh, smiley. Yeah, especially after mm-hmm. the Smiley's. Poor guy, man. man. Mm-hmm. Poor guy, Jesus. I think, I think there is definitely the possibility that we will see Alex turn at some point point. And if not turn, then I feel like there's still the possibility that tensions are going to rise between the Hellions. Because look at you know look at the the lackadaisical, noncommittal attitude of Empath per se, mm-hmm. and then we have Quanin, who is fulfilling her role as team leader out of a sense of due diligence and obligation. John Gray Crow, John Gray Crow, is just quietly going along with his crime and punishment because he is trying to strive to be a better person. So that's kind of the the non-committal to like morally good leaning side of hellions but now we have wild child as as just mentioned we have wild child and nanny who have their a rock and edge sharpened. i i don't know if anybody knows what it's like to work with somebody who's just like a terrible lazy piece of shit. you know um maybe maybe this <laughs> no, is a universal we know. thing no right yeah. nobody's nobody's ever worked with like a shaw before Um, that's, that's just my own personal experience. I worked with Sean, who was a tremendous piece of shit. Shout out Sean. (laughs) Sean. Um, (laughs) I'm going to be amazed to see how much of this makes it to air. I know. Uh, I was
5: thinking that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. Sometimes I talk for my health. Um, But I think that, I think that Alex's unhappiness, you know, at a certain point we're seeing something of, his inclusion with the Hellions is what I would call the Krokoan recidivism rate. You know, he did, his crime didn't exactly fit the punishment. The mm-hmm. punishment is a little bit cruel and unusual. The punishment is unyielding in a way that is exacerbating the mental health concerns that incited the behavioral issue in the first place. So I feel like we are gonna see him spiral to that tipping point, as Kyle uh, mentioned. But I feel like who else would be unpleased with their role? Other than Wild Child and Nanny, I don't want to carry the slack for a team, you know personally. So if there were going to be some kind of Hellion Civil War, I would say it's going to be like Empath, Gray Crow, and Quanin versus Havoc, Nanny, and uh, Wild Child. Would be just my crazy guess because we just can't get enough of Nanny this episode, and with very good reason. Uh, with the last minute reveal of Nanny harboring one of the infant right robots, and in response to the tenets of the Hesiod Protocol, how quickly along do you think the man? Machine Alliance is moving, and do you foresee it being a tentpole in the reign of X? Mm. Mm-hmm. I I love that they're <laughs> approaching it again
4: because we really haven't seen much of it since a uh, Hoxbox itself. Um, it, it's really fascinating, and I see why they put the protocol in place, especially because knowing what Moira knows, we know what the future holds. Especially not even just the Sentinels, but like the Phalanx. So, I, I it's really fascinating to see it back in play.
2: Yeah, truly, and especially with Cameron. Hodge's previous relationship to the phalanx. Yep. And mm-hmm. it broke my heart when, like, the, the smiley was, like, false value mutant equals friends. I was like, oh. oh sure. Heartbreaking, dude. Heartbreaking. So, Man and Machine Alliance, how quickly do we think it's
5: ramping up, Drew? I don't think it's gonna ramp up quickly, but I do think we're gonna start kind of seeing it pop up, maybe even in other books, too. There's kind of, like, little things that are happening in every single book. So like one thing that I've noticed that is like hive minds. So you have like the brood, those things in that giant sized nightcrawler issue. um,
1: Oh yeah. The little spider
5: things.
4: Mm -hmm. The
5: the things on sword, you know, just like those kinds of things, like the hive mind uh, kind of aspect that was like brought, like touched upon almost in every single book in some kind of way. That I can think of, and I think the like robot human mutant relationship is kind of going to be another thing that's going to be implemented, you know, because they were all, they were all touched upon in Hawks Pox, so we kind of mm-hmm. got to bring those themes into now. I, I that. do wonder
4: if Sword's going to deal with Orcus because they still have that giant space station. Oh yeah, I
1: forgot about that space station. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 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 I I have to agree that it's. It's gotta be coming into focus more as we move along in Reign of X. We have to start hitting more of these benchmarks, I guess, in the progression of the Earth that Moira has has experienced. And I... (sighs) We we keep seeing more and more progression towards towards that, and yeah, the mutants have been fighting that it off, but at some point they're they're going to miss something.
4: You know what popped in my mind when reading this data page about the Hesoid protocol was: is this why Warlock's been hiding the whole time in Doug's arm? Like, like yeah.
2: It's crazy. Honestly. No, truly. For for everybody reading along who doesn't, or listening along, um, for everybody like me who doesn't know what format this show takes, Jesus, um, <laughs> <laughs> for, for everybody who is listening along, who is maybe driving or at work, we'll cover the tenets. Of the Hesiod Protocol. The tenets of the Hesiod Protocol, as stated in the data page on this issue, are as follows As AI has been weaponized against mutant kind in the past, so shall it be in the future. Like all AI, anti-mutant code evolves towards self-awareness, and it is better to poison a seed than to fell a tree. So I think that that last tenet is really important in looking forward, because if we think about it, there are still many anti-mutant seeds, you know, but not many AI anti-mutant seeds at the moment. But of course, Nanny just rescued herself a fine little sapling. <laughs>
6: mm-hmm. so, I, so I cannot cute. see
2: that. And it's so cute it is i want a plush of it like i you wish do. we do have a very multi-talented cast on x's for podcast everybody is a writer or an artist in some capacity or just a huge lover of the comics medium but we don't have anybody that does like you know crochet and if anybody's listening that like really digs me for some reason and like, a crochet baby <laughs> baby um like, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna send it back <laughs> do you know what i mean um it's a custom and I will, I will cherish it. It'll be, it'll be next to my little Funko pop displays. And you know, (laughs) I, I'm almost, God, I'm almost 30. Um, <laughs> to,
4: to it doesn't. It doesn't stop when you get older either. So. It it <laughs> end, it? No, it doesn't. It yeah. doesn't get better. It doesn't get any better. I, nope. I
2: I made I made a point because uh, we we're recording this in early January, and I made a point to wrap all of this past year's Christmas presents for my family in a really fine super Marvel superheroes wrapping paper that I found. And the reason that I did it was specifically so they can know to be ashamed of my hobbies. Like, <laughs> I love I, it. I, I really needed them to know, like this is not going away. <laughs> um, this is this is only going to get worse with age. But um, so we're rounding down here, guys. And I just want to say, first and foremost, before we get into our next question, our final uh, potential question, um, supplication is not the name of the game on X is for podcasts. We we may write, but we don't write for Marvel. You know. So with that said, I I want to take a look at. Loose predictions, in a sense. I'm not looking for mutants to join Hellions, but, you know, while the future of Orphan Maker remains uncertain, and with careful examination of the remaining roster, what subset of mutant powers do you feel like would be an appropriate fit to round out the Hellions? Mm-hmm. I'm not looking for, you know, throw Blink into this, you know, or or give me this storyline with this person or pick up from here, but what vague power set do you feel is missing from our group? To recap who we have, of course, we have Quanon as Psylocke with telepathy and psionic blade regeneration, uh, generation, rather. We have Havoc with cosmic energy absorption and energy beams. John Gray Crow has an accelerated healing factor, technomorphic abilities, and expert markmanship. Empath has the psionic ability to sense and manipulate the emotions of others. Wild Child is superhuman senses, reflexes, endurance, and a regenerative healing factor. And then, of course, we have Nanny and Orphan Maker. So... You know, who who pretty much need... I mean, Nanny is a low-level telepath and has the ability to regress the minds of adults into children, and I really hope that we never have to see that. Yeah. But with Orphan Maker out of play and not trying to specifically write Hellions number 9, what vague power set do you feel is missing to round out this cast? Uh,
4: we probably need maybe more of a real bruiser. something, Somebody more super strength, super strong, because... Ray Crow is more of the the fighting type. That's the only kind of like if you're like you know thinking of your, like your dream teams. You know you've always got the telepath, the strategist, the you know the bruiser. That's the only one that I really think is is missing. They're all the wild cards in this team.
2: So I get that. I really, really do. Uh, Kylan Drew. Um, I don't know. Fight to the death. I was
5: thinking the same. I was thinking the same. Thing. Thing, like like a colossus type person you know what I mean or like, even like a Wolverine you know like a, like they do have wild child for that but he's got other things on his mind at the moment kind of, you know what I mean like he's that's not really
1: his priority
2: he is in an rocky state of mind for sure <laughs>
1: <laughs> or maybe a immense or maybe a ah, yeah yeah
2: mint isn't done with
4: him
1: yet so right um for me I think they need some kind of elemental manipulation. Really? Yeah. I love
2: that like okay so like uh like an omni elemental manipulator like a like a crystal of the inhuman's per se or like um, Megan Megan kind of or Megan kind of
1: maybe i i kind of i was thinking more like like a iceman or a storm something like that but not just, those specifically yeah.
2: that kind of power set <laughs> just like a vague elemental right yeah yeah i had you know and and two of my two of my three or four were hit on the head here, which I'm pleased beyond belief, I was going to say, of course, we could use a bruiser outside of Wildchild. You know, Orphan Maker has superhuman strength and resilience, but he is out of the picture at the moment. So assuming that his armor cannot be reinstated... Uh, it would be great to get a bruiser on the team. I think that we also, you know, not to knock Quan in, but I think that we could stand to have a greater telepath on the team, mm-hmm. and an elemental for sure would be tremendous. Mm-hmm. I was going to say because they seem to be hoofing it a lot, I think a teleporter. Mm. I think, oh yeah, I think especially if you know, because the hellions are the hellions are the collateral damage team. Hellions are the team that, you know, they're not covert ops. They literally destroyed a mansion in their first issue. Um, (laughs) One of them, Havoc, destroyed an entire mansion in his first (laughs) issue. Uh Um, So, you know, they are, in fact, the collateral damage squad. So it's not like they need to, like, blink in and blink out. Uh, But I do think that there would be a great need because I don't think part of their punishment and rehabilitation is walking, like, 18 miles. I think that's a little unfair. (laughs) And after they just, like, if I just trekked through two issues of crossing all of Otherworld on foot and horseback, I would have come home and put in a formal request to the Quiet Council for a teleporter like this is this is not what i signed up for i am not being paid i am the king i am the king of this is below my pay grade which is (laughs) which is probably why i'm self-employed so teleporter for sure but that rounds out this episode. I just wanted to pose to the group: Is there anything that we missed? Is there anything that you've been itching to get out? Is there is there any final thought on Aliens Number Eight?
4: I just want to see more of superheroes ignoring the supervillain like uh, monologue that they had like in the beginning when like <laughs> Hodge is like Hodge is like hey, here's all of my villainous plans and then like Nanny and uh, Wild Child are like hey, fuck this bye. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I have to say that that is that is uh, a very entertaining uh, way to, to do things.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: I could definitely see more of that.
5: <laughs> Love Agre-
1: it. Agreed.
2: Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, on agreed,
5: agreed. Yeah. Um, yeah. One. Like, I guess my final thoughts on like the issue. Like, I liked this issue. As a whole like as a whole, like you know, if I'm comparing it to other comics, I really liked this issue. But if I'm comparing it to the other Hellions comics, it was not my favorite issue.
2: You know, I I do I genuinely respect that. I I personally feel uh the opposite. I think this was, if not the best issue of Hellions, because it wasn't the best issue of Hellions. It was not a bad issue of Hellions. It just wasn't of eight issues the best issue of Hellions so far. Yeah. But I think that this was the best showing of this incarnation of the team. We have Wild Child and Nanny continuing to divert from the normal, diverge from the normal. We have Breakfro and Quanin getting closer, closer in an emotionally honest, if not intimate way. We have Empath finally stepping up to the plate and being a self-serving, if not team member. Uh, so I think that everybody had a moment to shine this issue. And I think that Zeb Wells continues to do fantastic work.
5: Yeah, I guess my point more was that it's not like... I didn't find that there was that much comedy in this issue as there was like within the last eight, eight issues. I found that though in those eight issues, I last I laughed almost every single issue. Whereas this one, I didn't really, you know, it's just kind of like like it was a good story and like yes, I enjoyed it in that. But again, like compared to the other eight issues, it wasn't as funny. It wasn't as just like I don't know. It was just kind of like very straightforward comic book. Like they get there battle ensues. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Mm.
4: Although, although when the, the mutant calls havoc, I mean, when the right robot calls havoc, mutant scum, and he's like, uh, yeah, like the, the, there were there were little
5: quips and yeah. and I wasn't like a, a laugh out loud like I can't believe
2: no I have to, I have to truly agree with Drew here
4: no no I'm sorry I was I was just gonna say it's because orphan maker was missing though because he's the like one of the main comedic aspects yeah and I
5: guess nanny sorry. was that too like the the whole dynamic of yep. like um like like that one issue I'll never forget when she was like they were when they were in the mansion and she's like on her back you know what I mean and it's just like everyone is like going like nanny's on Her back, orphan maker is doing this, you know, wild child's going psycho, and it's just like. It's just a giant clusterfuck, you know?
2: <laughs> oh, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think back to issue three or four when John Gray Crow says something along the lines of basically we're fucked and she goes, oh, the language is a shame. You know, there is, there is such comedy golden hellions and I feel like the dark tone kind of negates that in a lot of ways until you have an issue like this, which was kind of, you know, in a dearth for comedy. I feel like... The even even going back to issue six with the introduction of the locust file, we still had comedy gold between Sinister and Havoc, between Havoc losing his eye and not letting it go. You know, we still had some funny nanny bits. I think that, you know, if there is anything that I would like to see going forward, I would like to see the comedy continue because Mm -hmm. I feel like it is Zeb Wells is walking a a tightrope line that I wouldn't particularly want to walk, which is having to deftly weave comedy into the darkest book in the currently running X series. That's just me personally.
1: Yeah, I I have to agree as well. Uh I do miss the comedy and I I do hope that it comes back so that maybe things aren't quite as dark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <totally. laughs>
0: Hey everybody, Nico here. Now this next segment, I'm so proud to introduce it. Back in October, we were asked to be a part of the New York Comic Con Into the Metaverse online experience, which was so significant because especially during this past year, people needed community more than ever at a time where it was the hardest to come by. So getting to be a part of that annual tradition, albeit in a new form, meant the world to me. I've shown it the last few Comic Cons, and it's always been such a humongous part of my annual comic experience. This next segment sees myself, Nathan, Josh, Arturo, Rod, and series ally and friend of the pod, Demanda Martini, talking about some of the diversity that's always run through the core of the strangest teens of all time, the X-Men, and just what it means to us to see that sort of representation. We hope you guys enjoy. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another exciting panel here at New York Comic Con, sort of like during the week, right? So we're here today with more people that have been featured on X's for podcast, and I can't wait to talk to everybody. But first, introductions. I'm Nico. You guys can find me at Nico Action on Instagram and Twitter. That's N I C O A C T I O N. Nathan, introduce hey,
4: I'm you Nathan. There. You can so find me, find me at Dazzler A O A on uh, Twitter and
0: Instagram. Sweet, Josh, hit me with the deets.
3: Um, Josh. You can find me at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L on Twitter and at AsleepattheWheel.com. I have to
0: ask where we can find, and if you can introduce yourself, beautiful, amazing, Miss Demanda Martini.
8: Hi, I'm Demanda Martini. Uh, you can find me at Demanda Martini, D-M-A-N-D-A, Martini, at Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pornhub. I mean, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding.
9: Well,
0: speaking of hot and porn, I want to throw it to the guy who has been on both of these panels with me. I'm so excited. Rod, tell us about yourself.
9: Thank you. My pleasure. I'm Rodders. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Hawksrod, H-A-U-X-R-O-D, and I'm ready to start this panel.
0: Uh, Well, we just got one more person to say hi to, and I'm pretty sure this is their first panel, so everybody be kind and gentle, although he's never held an opinion, so don't (laughs) worry about that. Everybody, say hi to Arturo.
10: Hi, guys. I'm Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram, and ready to pop my panel cherry.
0: Oh, God. And I can't even tell you how amazed I am that I've kept these introductions down to less than two minutes. This is brilliant. Okay. So today's panel content is going to be examining the inclusivity and diversity as it evolved over the students that attended the ex universities. Now, the idea of the ex university is a transformative thing. It's not just beholden to Gray Malkin place, it's actually an idea. It's an idea that has older mutants wanting to look out for younger mutants and occasionally endanger them for personal gain. There would be no better place to start than, of course, the O5. Now, Now, the way these games work is just jump in when you know the answer, there's no prizes, so there's nothing to worry about, right? I wanna start things off with, for the strangest teens of all time, They weren't really that strange at first. As a matter of fact, they were barely teens so much as they were uh, high-energy young white men. Now, Sunfire and Banshee at least offered some international flair. At least they had accented dialogue. But, you know, the two people who were treated as the strangest were the two women that were initially in the X-Men's ranks. Who were the first two women to be formal members of the X-Men?
8: Jean Grey and Polaris. Yeah, Yeah,
0: absolutely.
10: (laughs) We're not buzzing in? (laughs) Oh, no. No, there's no buzzing
0: in.
8: Sorry.
10: you just (laughs) (laughs) sell, Represent.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, when I think about Polaris, I can't help but think about some of the exciting things that she's been going through in the pages of X Factor. She's a character who has been mistreated and maligned and treated as an owned piece of property, and no woman is property. And it's really been a tremendous thing to see her transformation through the years Demanda, I know you stand a Claremontian queen. <laughs> when you think about where these women began and where they are now, What do you think about in terms of the evolution of the honesty of the female portrayal?
8: So um, one of my favorite things has actually been following the Claremont run on Twitter and all of his like little, you know, fun little factoids. During Claremont's run, he really sort of like bent the gender and made things way more about the women. There There were more women on the team. None of them were the typical my big giant hair that is completely impractical to fight in, my skimpy suits. It was all about like here's my jacket, here's my utilitarian boots, I'm gonna punch somebody. Even Storm lost, you know, all of her big hair, went full mohawk punk. The the two big ones are for me anyway, are Kitty Pride and Rachel Summers who like you know kitties started off super soft and she also went like a little bit punk for a bit when she had like her coming of age in the wolverine kitty pride miniseries she cut off all of her hair to be like boom i'm ready rachel always had like her buzz cut mullet going on great
0: party Um, in the front party in the back party on top party in the usa yeah
8: Yeah, just uh, just all over because i mean you know She was, again, speaking of like someone treated like property, like she was treated like property for, you know, most of her life up to that point. So, you know, she's like, I don't need hair. whatever. (laughs) Well,
0: speaking of not needing hair, the only unique, really different looking member of the team originally was Iceman as Angel had wings that were frequently tucked away. Beast was just, you know, thick hot cyclops had the visor you know there was so little that made them strange it really wasn't until the new mutants the things got a little bit more interesting now In 1982, the New Mutants were first introduced, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but the New Mutants graphic novel missed its ship date by two weeks because Bob McCloud was getting married, and he ran a little long on his honeymoon. So I can't think of a better reason for the book to ship a little bit late. Now, McCloud himself would ultimately leave the title after roughly the eighth issue, having received a bunch of help from industry legend Sal Buscema on inks, and then ultimately taking over the art duties on the title, because uh, he felt that the title had kind of lost what he had been brought in to do but speaking of that the initial team of the new mutants was rather short-lived who wants to try naming we can even like all name one let's try and all name the original five new mutants karma oh, karma dog. got karma danny, danny. <laughs> Psych, right? wolf spain wolf spain and we got one more cannibal 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 Absolutely. Now, we saw a little bit more different characterization here. We saw a woman who was incredibly self-possessed of her own strength in the form of Mirage, Psych, Danny Moonstar, you know, whatever you want to call her in that moment. (laughs) We had a less active male leader in the form of Cannonball, who was a little bit goofy. And we had a Wolverine in Sunspot who, when he transformed, literally became like darkness personified. In fact, this next few New Mutants kind of pushed that visual evolution. Did anybody here have a strong reaction to the visual revolution that went on in the pages of New Mutants under the pens of guys like Bill Sienkiewicz?
8: Sunspot in particular, his representation of being an Afro-Brazilian and his powers literally manifesting to make him even blacker, as people are calling him racial slurs and beating him on the soccer field, was really powerful, in my opinion.
9: Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my God. Mm, definitely.
0: Now, Rod, I mean, you are a man of color living in the South. Like, that is, to have representation for that is so important. When you read that, when you were growing up, and you connected with, you know, this idea of the new mutants, how did you feel about the representation of Sunspot losing control to his anger?
9: Well, I mean, I definitely identified with it, because there's been many times even as a black person as a gay person everything in between there's a lot of times where you get bullied or called names or just picked on in general where you just want to lose your shit and just go crazy but if you do then you're seen as the angry black person the sassy gay man all this other like stereotypical things so you have to keep calm and not go outside the box so being able to see like kind of myself in a comic and seeing them actually like take charge of the situation a little bit and actually fight back was good to see, in my opinion.
0: How about you guys? I'm gonna open it up to the panel. How did you guys feel about the depictions of a much angrier team in the form of the original five new mutants who also took on a visually more dynamic stranger outward appearance? I, I would say I loved the original New Mutants
4: team because the like you had three women on the team, you had three minorities on the team. It wasn't a lot of, it wasn't just a whole lot of the same, you know, normal old white person that you always saw <laughs> <laughs> that you always saw in the that you always saw like the original. Think, just right? an
0: entire team of Xaviers as far as right. the eye can see. <laughs>
4: but i i just loved how different different it was it was just so cool to see everything like open up like when I was, a kid, I was like oh this is great
10: yeah i mean it's a it's a little bit of a dated reference but i remember like at the time new mutants kind of felt like uh like an ad for benetton and like you know what i mean it was like and the only like white blonde person on it was distinctly goofy and white trashy and not you know this handsome leading man so it was it was just unexpected you know it was like and and it was just I think uh, kind of ahead of its time in in terms of uh, representation and there's a lot of I can't really speak to this part of it but like it could be a little problematic and a little bit tokenizing of people and like you know we got one this and one that but I don't know man at the time it I didn't see it through that lens it just felt like wow these are heroes that don't look like other heroes i've ever seen not so cool
0: i'm completely with you because when i get to that last couple of pages of who's scaring stevie and there's all kitty pride oh. saying all the words kitty pride should never ever say i just <laughs> want to like disappear i can't i can't do it i get itchy
10: kitty does say a lot of problematic shit and i, I get that nowadays like i would never fly and it's and I'm not saying it was okay then, but I'm saying <laughs> it, the impact of reading it, I think did more good than harm because it kind of pushed a conversation that was a little uncomfortable, but it was, I think, necessary. So I, I don't know. I, I kind of defend some of Kitty's horrible moments from the 80s. Yeah,
9: I mean, I kind of see what they were trying to do. It's like when, speaking of Kitty Pride and like in her Guardians run, when she was talking about the concentration camps and everything, <clears throat> they were trying to make, you know, give notice to that and give representation to that. The way the times were back then, they could have done it better, but they were trying to make a difference to give notice to certain wrongdoings. It's just it could have been done better, but you know. For sure. At least sure. they tried. Yeah, I think this
10: I'm, is this I, is one of those times where the creator's intent, like you have to you have to take that into consideration. Like sure, some of the uh, Execution was clumsy and ham fisted, but the intention was right. You can you can knock Claremont for a lot of things, but like his heart was in the right place.
8: As far as inclusion goes, I also like the fact that the three female characters also were completely different body types. It wasn't, hey, here are white blonde women. Um, so that was definitely something <laughs> that wasn't i the Jay Scott
3: Campbell lineup.
8: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. Um, but but as far as Kitty Pride goes, I mean She was created to be the sort of the child that all of the children reading were supposed to sort of like get in with and having her be that sort of spokesperson for the demographic. It was like, hey, kids actually like, you know, want to start talking about all of this stuff. So let's get them to start talking about it. So who do we use? Oh, Kitty, because she's the loudmouth that we created to do this. Kind of like what Arturo was saying, like you have to take a step back and be like, okay, so is this character really? a terrible person, or was the creator really trying to, like, use them to to, to right. do something else?
0: I absolutely agree with your statement here in that why was this character created to do something? And I have a question that I'm going to be pitching to you, Josh. I have to see how deep this well goes, or <laughs> this wheel, as it were. So everybody remembers from just a couple of minutes ago when we established that the original five new mutants were Cannonball, Karma, Mirage, Sunspot, and Wolfsbane. Now, we saw a few more new mutants come in the the next few issues. We saw Magma, we saw Magic, Cypher, and Warlock, but it wasn't for quite a while until we saw the inclusion of two more new mutants. Uh, By any chance, do you remember the new mutants that were added in the roughly the 50s and 70s of new mutants?
3: Josh... Because these are terrible. Are we talking? Bird brain and Gossamer? Oh, we are! Oh, you make me so proud! Oh so, was like,
9: yes, Z-List! Yes. That was a deep cut.
0: That was, I'm bleeding it was so deep. Oh, oh. my god. My surgeon is concerned I'm going to press charges. So that was
11: <laughs> spec
0: friggin Oh man, that made me so proud. Now, they weren't the only sort of Z-Listers that we were pelted with throughout the 1980s. The 1980s also saw in 1984 the introduction of the Hellions, in 1987, the introduction of the Fallen Angels, and in 1988, we got the Exterminators. <laughs> so, I have to know, guys, with characters like Cat's Eye, Empath, Jetstream, Roulette and Taro, and Thunderbird being Hellions, with Vanisher, Gomi, Ariel, Chan, Sunspot, Siren, Multiple Mans, Multiples, Boom Boom, Moon Boy, Devil Dinosaur, Warlock, I don't think I can say some of those names on YouTube, and Exterminators, also having a few more people in the form of Firefist, Rusty Collins, Rusty, Rusty show up in the pages of new mutants shortly thereafter there was a massive transformation in the mid 80s it really brought new back into it but we also saw a big change in who the characters were instead of boom boom being uh you know a down on a luck girl just trying to make it in the big city ma boom boom's got problems okay richter's got problems they went out of their way to give normal people normally problems They gave everybody problems. How did you guys feel about the newening of the new mutants to this much more severe tone? And how do you guys feel that reflected in the diversity and inclusion that the book was looking to promote?
9: Well, I mean, personally, I always love when characters get in a crazy situation or problems that real life people have. Because I feel like there's always someone going through that same problem or a problem like that. So someone can identify with it, and if someone identifies with it, then I guess the artist kind of wins, because it gets their point across. No matter yeah, how it's... It, it
10: wins. I like <laughs> it that. It wins. Wins! <laughs> that was like kind of my entry point to New Mutants, was right around that time, the Genosha story and the Extinction Agenda, when they were going through a lot of changes. Like, uh, coincidentally enough, one of my first New Mutant issues was when Warlock died. <gasps> So that might become relevant again soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, or, well, not, I'm sorry, not Warlock, when Doug died. Oh, okay. well, I uh, mean. Oh, yes. They only which, died like you know. have They're kind of, they're, so kind like... of they're, they're one, you guys. They're, they're soulmates. They really um, are. The thing that I love the most about that era was instead of it feeling like a team with villains, it was more like rivals. It felt like there was this environment with people that had different perspectives, different entry points, different, I don't know, different contours to the dynamic. It wasn't so black and white. And I, I thought that was so cool. And, I, and you brought up Warpath. I love him so much as a character. And the fact that he came over from the Hellions and eventually joined, like, I love that. I love a, a good redemption story.
3: Early on highlighting that they were rivals and not bad teams like the Hellions yeah. were not the bad guys they weren't the bad mutants you know even uh exterminators with x-factor like they were just different groups of kids at different schools and um you know they did a really good job with the early story where you know Ileana was bouncing through time and she couldn't keep her stuff straight and they saw that all the kids were with the Hellions at the Massachusetts Academy and oh no, they went evil. And then like when the time came around, they found out that like, no, like they're just all like chilling together. Like Emma was helping everyone get over their shit and, you know, work through their trauma. Like they weren't bad. They they were the rivals. Like they were just another group of, you know, it wasn't, which is also really important for me because like that was the team that had, you know, that had the Muslim kid and that had your Roma girl and that had, you know, like it was portraying different and to make the tokens of that be the bad ones, like would have been kind of sideways, but you know, they always recognized each other. Danny and Warpath always recognized each other. Thunderbird, Danny and James always recognized each other. And, you know, they had that handshake and, Like, they were cool even if other people were fighting.
0: Now, I just want to point out, Mm -hmm. Editor's Note, you made this point gorgeously about understanding the difference between a rival and a nemesis. Uh, You spoke about it extensively, specifically in regard to Apocalypse, alongside Arturo and Robbie. Super excited, super stoked. So if you guys want to hear that amazing podcast episode, it is our official response to the X of Swords Ohatmu. So you definitely want to pick that up. Or
10: official handbook for anyone else. that.
0: (laughs) It's the Ohatmu Zoss. We all know what it is. Now, I have a question though about these new mutants because Marvel wasn't done with them yet. While there would come new iterations, there was a short-lived New Mutants miniseries in 1997. And what I thought was interesting about this mutant miniseries, Truth or Death, is that it allowed for some changes to the characters. Nathan, this is something you have spoken extensively about on the internet, specifically the character evolution (laughs) of karma from, oh, that other one, to I'm so gay! And I just wanted to give you an opportunity (laughs) to talk about how incredibly gay karma got.
4: Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, like... I loved the evolution of her from, you know, she was just uh, the, the really quiet girl to the girl who shows up at X475 who's got the short pink hair and she's like hanging out with the lesbian filmmakers. And she's talking with Danny. She's like, oh, no, Sam's really not my (laughs) (laughs) type." She's like, no, no, you can have a crush on him, not me. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, especially with that uh, miniseries, I love the evolution of her not just having the one specific side talent. It kind of gave her more of a broader telepathy power
0: that I haven't really touched on as much since. But I just I love that evolution of it for her. And she got to go from being the Vietnamese girl to being the gay Vietnamese girl, because until there's more representation, unfortunately, a lot of these characters are the that one. As we were saying earlier, it becomes sort of tokenism, which it's the well, it's the best meant tokenism. As we seem to get more and more of these characters coming in, there's a lot more room for growth. And it would be hard to talk about the strangest teens of all time without talking about everybody's favorite 90s disaster project in a very good way. But Generation X never quite lived up to what it was meant to be. Unfortunately, whether it's because Lobdell and Bacalo left the book within the first 25 issues and the next main writer on the book who was supposed to be James for three issues. James Robinson, thank you. Left after three issues, leaving the book in the hands of a, a much older writer. Larry Hama, phenomenal writer when it comes to Wolverine, gave us the amazing album Albert and LCD, who can complain about that? But maybe giving him teenagers was a little tough. Now, I bring this up because the original Generation X lineup was Chamber missing his damn face husk missing her damn skin jubilee who represented so many beautiful elements of inclusion she as is living proof you know character living proof of the evolution of the x-men as well as sync there was so much melanin on this team and then everybody was kind of melty on top of that guys strangeness finally became strange in the 90s what did you guys think about that transformation of x-men when generation x hit
10: you didn't even mention skin. Talk about... Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. I literally have skin and sink next to each other in my notes. So <laughs> I just skipped one into the other. Um, you know, skin is melty. He's very melty. <laughs> very, very pudding in a good way, but pudding. Now, how did you guys feel about the transformation this, of the X-Men this into was my
3: pudding? team. I was in junior high when this came out, which I think is pretty much... I think that's the age you're going to be at when you look up to like teen characters. Cause I know like I was actually, I think I was like graduating high school around like 18, 19 when new X-Men hit, but I wasn't like 18, 19 year old me was focused on way more fucked up things than Quentin choir. But when I was in junior high, like generation X was like the perfect, like, Teenagers are where I looked to because it was like the next thing. And I was the perfect age to just just completely embrace and the 90s and Huskin Chamber and his sad emo boy and her type A girl and you know, Monet's just attitude and, you know, giving Jubilee a hard time when poor Jubilee didn't deserve it, and Sink just cluelessly walking between them, not realizing that, like, every girl was dripping wet once he passed by, like all of that, and just loving it all, and Sean, like, getting a good, positive male role model, and the way that they split up. Sean getting that hot body. Oh my gosh, in those short shorts? (laughs) Sean was so hot. Every time they split up, like this is one of the things I look back on it too, is that Like, okay, the girls had these antagonistic relationships when, you know, everyone was together. But whenever they split and it was just the girls or just the boys, like, the girls had this very different relationship. Like, they were much more like sisters. They supported each other. You know, the boys, too. Like, the boys would separate and they would stop being macho and they would actually, like, talk about, like, their feelings. And, you know, they were always trying to, like, help Jono, like, just tell like trying to help him get through his stuff like they were supportive of each other in a way that you know like this was the on-ramp into like Dawson's Creek teens that just talk about their emotions so much and I have no idea why my whole generation has as many mental problems as we do because you think we would have learned something from the 90s.
0: Well, and I want to actually bring that up. You know, we have Sink and we have Skin who represented (coughs) only the second full like X-Man who was a black man. And we have Sink who was one of the first really Latino X-Men.
10: I don't have a whole lot to say about Skin to be honest with you. (laughs) I know I brought it up before when you didn't mention them, but to the point that Josh was making, these kids felt so new and different from everything that had come before they, they were like the a culmination of the 90s you know they were they were the 90s brought to its logical conclusion and yeah. uh yeah i i loved it i i loved that era i love that time i love looking back and the emma frost and and banshee of it all and monet monet just like seeing seeing monet get the the attention she deserves now feels yes. so so yeah. right yeah it's it's great i it, i'm just so happy to see all of these great characters kind of back in the mix and I just want more of it just like everybody else. I want I want these fools that are in the vault to come out. <laughs> I, I want
0: Rod hit me with yeah. how you felt seeing more representation.
10: I mean I absolutely loved it. I honestly like
9: Arturo said I wanted more like we're getting now at least with Monet, not with Sink, he's in the vault. Um but <laughs> I just the fact that he they both were there, especially like Monet and Sink, especially they they were there and what they did and they were just normal people. They weren't like as much tokenized and they would, could just basically be themselves, which is very nice to see. Like I said, I love characters that can just have like real life stories and real life problems and just be real life jerks sometimes, cause that's relatable. Um, and we got to see that and it made me feel more included into the stories.
0: Oh man, I love that.
1: it's Kyle and it's Nico so Nico I have to be honest I hadn't even heard of the Eternals until, what, last year when they announced the movie. So this book, I'm completely clueless on what's going on.
0: Well, so that's kind of funny because a few times the Eternals have lost their memory and they've also been that clueless about the Eternals. So you're not really alone. Now, what you're going to come to find out in this next segment is that the Eternals actually, as a team proper, had a very small number of appearances. I don't want to give too much away. But the team itself, the Eternals, had less than 200 appearances before this issue came out, with less than 60 issues titled The Eternals in some way or another, whether it's regular issues of their series, annuals, or special one shots. So you're really not alone in that. Now, wow. this movie is predicted. Yeah, right? This movie is predicted to still go into theaters. And for those of you who hadn't heard, it's going to feature The Black Knight. Now, do you know too much about The Black Knight either?
1: No. Not. Not really. All I I really know is that he's tied to Captain Britain, right?
0: They kind of come together a bunch. They're good buddies, and they do that sort of British superhero thing. So whether you're looking at this movie as an amazing opportunity to see one of Jack Kirby's final creations for Marvel, The Eternals, come to the screen, or you're excited about a little bit of like a Captain Britain-adjacent, X-Men-adjacent-ish kind of thing with the Black Knight, hopefully you guys are going to dig The Eternals when it comes out. And we hope that you guys dig this coverage of The Eternals featuring myself, Raven, Maddie, Jonah, and special guest star, series... Original contributor Kevo, a little bit of the background to the series. We hope you guys enjoy. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Exes for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's NicoAction. That's N I C O A C T I O N.
2: Hey, guys, it's Maddie, and as always, you can find me over on Instagram at The Basely Covetous Man and over on Twitter at Basely Covetous.
7: And I'm Raven, aka Dame Red Bento. Just type that in. You can find me all over the place, especially on Twitter. I'd love to see you sometime.
11: and i'm kevo of the husband's talking more or less podcast and you can find me online at kevo really k-e-v-o-r-e-a-l-l-y
6: and i'm jonah you can follow me over on twitter and instagram at peak jonah and we hope you survive this experience unlike Zures, who i don't know him but he was talking earlier in the issue and then he died later in the issue so that's like pretty big and important and like I didn't think Eternals would die. I didn't even know what an Eternal was before this. And now, now he dead. Someone squished his I burning. mean, you'd
0: think nomenclature-wise alone that they shouldn't be able to die. I mean, it's right there in the name. Eternals.
7: Well, I mean, he's only a little dead. He's going to come back in a few minutes. So like an X-Man, I guess. <laughs> or a much. Cylon. <laughs> right. But I mean, I, they, they said it themselves that, you know, they can come back.
0: Oh, for sure. Now, here's the thing about the Eternals. The Eternals represent, in many ways, the last major contribution by Jack King Kirby to Marvel. These were his larger-than-life biggest ideas he had, like, ever come up with. And Marvel has gone so far to, like, sacredly treasure these guys and have re- retconned a number of things into being eternals related now there's a couple of things i want to cover at the start of this i was lucky enough to grow up with a set of eternals 1 through 19 plus annual which was the original run by jack king kirby and that's it's like david Baldion the great jack king kirby these are all the nicknames everybody knows (laughs) so i want to know who has experience with the eternals not the externals who we just (laughs) dealt with before ten of swords And not the extermination, which got rid of all of the teen X-Men and not the other extermination agenda. Not that one. So these internals, who has any experience with them?
7: I think I only have the most base touch with them. Like I read a couple of the comic books way back when, but I didn't. I I didn't remember so much of them in depth. But that's why this was such a great reading, is because it really helped get me back into the Eternals and like everything that they can do.
2: You know, I have limited exposure with the Eternals. I am familiar with them, of course, or most. Familiar familiar with them from their upcoming spotlight in the MCU. So I am familiar with some of the namesake of Eternals. But after the disappointment that was the inclusion in the Inhumans, and I got really into the Inhumans, the Eternals sounding so close, I was just like, uh, I'll read it when I read
6: it. I have a confession while reading this. I really thought I was reading Inhumans. And I'm like, oh, what am I going to see Medusa? What am I going to see Black Bolt? Oh, oh, no. wrong, wrong people, Where's Jonah.
11: the dog with the tuning fork? No, Jonah, <laughs> no. I get your confusion, though. Because, like, (laughs) I also... For the longest time, I've had trouble keeping the difference between these two sets of characters apart.
7: Their artwork was was often quite similar, and kind of the construct of how the their characters kind of talked and interacted was also really similar. So I can absolutely see where somebody would easily confuse the Eternals and the e, the Inhumans as being um, interchangeable or or within the same society. So I don't blame you for getting those kind of mixed about.
11: And like everyone lives on the fucking moon <laughs> It does seem highly overcrowded up there
7: There are only
6: so many blue sides to the, mu- the moon there, there are three places that people live in the Marvel Universe It's the moon, the New York sewers, and the New York itself Nobody lives anywhere else Well,
0: I was
11: gonna say, or under the sea mm-hmm. Ooh,
0: under the sea is a po- space Now we have a lot of space shit going on Now, before we get any further, because I can't wait to dive deep into Eternals number one itself, but I would be remiss if I don't do a little bit of that thing that I'm known for doing, and that's helping everyone understand. So the Inhumans are Black Bolt and Medusa, and there's that dog with the tuning fork. Wait, no, we covered that. So the Eternals are actually, like I said, Jack King Kirby's. Final major creation. Now, the main Eternals that people tend to talk about are Ajax, Druig, Icarus, Makari, Cersei, Sprite, Thena, and Zurus. Now, I want to point out that this is actually one of those special things where they have done so many retcons. They've gone so far as to retcon the Eternals back into August of 1940. What? There was, in fact, an issue published by, wait a minute, some time travel here, Red Raven Comics. Right, published by Timely Comics, which contained a sea story. And that sea story contained a group of super Olympians that have since been retconned to be the Eternals.
2: Huh. Interesting.
11: That's the kind of stuff I live for.
2: I feel like I feel like if not to not to cast hate on DC, but I feel like if DC were to do something equivalent, it would be like, hey, remember Tales of the Black Freighter from Watchmen? Yeah, Aquaman was in that.
0: <laughs> well, okay, I love that. Shortly after Kirby created the Eternals for Marvel. He and Marvel kind of broke up for realsies. And like, I mean, everybody breaks up sometimes, but like, then you break up for real, right? Jack Kirby broke up with Marvel for real. He went over to DC. He created the new gods, which were basically the DC Eternals. Oh, he Mm -hmm. took the kids. Oh, he took the kids. That's how there's (laughs) Thanos and Darkseid who are like twins. Is that where the new gods come from? Yeah, yeah. Really? Sure is, yeah. So, you know, he actually did exactly what you just said, only it was well before Alan Moore had the opportunity to make DC filled with sadness. Now, there's even another connection to pre-Marvel Marvel Marvel with the Inhumans. Now, whoa, with the Eternals, what have you done? (laughs) So there's a character named Marvel Boy. And now the original Marvel Boy was like this kid who like, I don't know what it is with every fucking thing by Stan Lee where there's a kid and he's the Marvel kid and he's got the bracelets and he hits the bracelets and it's the magic, right? I don't know why this was his every fucking story. Like, some sort of demented carnival barker from hell trying to get you to win these fucking bracelets, right?
11: <laughs> but nobody does bracelets anymore. So, like, I appreciate it. Continue.
0: I do too. If the, like, Alex and Ani knew what they were missing by not producing superhero bracelets, anyway. So, that was a little white people joke for you. So then,
7: and you get the. A um... And you get a bangle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so. There's a character, Marvel Boy, and it turns out later on that this character, who would come to join the Agents of Atlas, Marvel's beautiful attempt at paying tribute to the Atlas era of Marvel Comics, a long forgotten era of super cool superheroes, they later revealed that he was actually a Uranian Eternal who was given these bands as a way to give him a like Earth based personality and control him. So Marvel really went all in on the Eternals. They have seeded them into every aspect of reality earth x a story about the celestials and their great coming that's all about the eternals in such a direct way now i bring up all of this all of this all of this because with everything i've said you would assume that the eternals as a team have appeared more than 168 times you would but they haven't i mean
11: i wouldn't but
0: so the eternals themselves have only appeared a handful of times Now, you know, Cersei, right? Who here loves Cersei? I love Cersei. She wasn't in this issue. That makes it hard to talk. Okay. Who here loves Macari Macari was also not in this issue. Okay, so there's a couple of Eternals missing, right? Mm. But I do want you guys to know that the Eternals actually have a long history with the Marvel Universe. The Eternals, several of them, Gilgamesh and Cersei in particular, have been members of the Avengers. I never realized how hard it is to say members of the Avengers. But <laughs> no, but I like it. Or Hamilton. I do too, right? Members of the Avengers. So the thing I bring up with that is Cersei was such a hot property at one point. She and the Black Knight in 1998 were spun off into an alternate universe known as the Ultraverse, which was a merging of the Marvel and Malibu comic universes. So, like, Cersei herself has some experience with interdimensional travel. The Eternals is coming out in the age of the Marvel multiverse. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing some connection.
11: And Black Knight is going to be in some form in the upcoming Eternals film with Kit Harrington playing Dane Whitman. Oh, I did it. Yeah, good for me.
0: You did it. You did it. You you, you said the name right.
11: It's been a while and Black Knight was so long.
0: <clears throat> oh, God, It was so long. long. So now I just want to give you guys a little bit more background before we play one of our super fun guests, the stupid thing nico found out on the internet games (laughs) that we love to play but so all eternals are imbued with cosmic energy that can be channeled into a number of superhuman abilities so long as they maintain their mental hold over their physical bodies you know that's not usually a concern i have but i understand the problems they face Eternals have superhuman strength and speed. Makari using his energy to be incredibly fast. In the upcoming film, Makari is going to be a woman. Very excited about that. Mm-hmm. They're able to create projective, concussive, heat, and blinding energy. They have flight and can levitate others. They can read minds and generate illusions. They can teleport vast distances, though prior to this Eternals number one, it was very uncomfortable and incredibly exhausting. That's why they did come up with an alternative in this issue. Mm-hmm. They are able to transmute objects, specifically Cersei, who has the most fine and extreme molecular control. They have the ability to project force fields, leaving them invulnerable to harm, specifically Icarus, whose force field seems to never turn off, even when unconscious. They have superhuman senses. Once again, specifically Icarus's are honed a little bit more. Now. Three Eternals can come together and form a gestalt-like <laughs> being known as the Unimind, a vastly powerful psionic entity that contains the totality of the powers of all of the beings that comprise it.
11: So when you say come together, are we talking like Voltron or are we talking Steven Universe Fusion? We're
0: They're all wearing the same suit. And the
2: Unimind kind of looks like a giant yellow krang. <laughs> kind of. a little. Oh, bit. that's
11: upsetting.
0: Yeah, it's like a big energy blob.
2: Can any three, any three Eternals can do this? It's just the magic number is three. It doesn't matter if it's Sprite or Makari or Icarus or Druid. It doesn't matter. who.
0: As long as there's three, but I mean, like, there's so many Eternals to choose from. You can pick one, two, three. Try them all on.
11: Explain to me again the benefit of doing this.
0: Well, now you're a giant big amorphous blob. And you have three that's, times the
2: power. So, yeah, you have all the powers in one big guy. Oh, it is referred to as the celestial's greatest gift. <laughs> that is so that's all, that's To turn all, that's all,
11: that's all into I this had. sort so of Cronenberg creation. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: Yes, absolutely. David Lynch's idea of a threesome video. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> Now, the thing about these Ew. the thing about these Eternals is you might think they sound incredibly powerful, but you need to know that it is built into the Eternals that they can never harm a celestial. Mm-hmm. To the point where if an Eternal is being possessed and is being forced to like puppet master attack a celestial, the Eternals' body will go limp and fall to the ground, like mid flight, just like a bad video game sprite. It's like an. But does this come up a lot?
7: Isaac Asimov level. Often of enough. The three rules. You can't hurt an Eternals. Yeah. <laughs> <It> <laughs> really so is.
0: Okay. That's the background you guys need to understand the Eternals. Now there's got to be a reason we're covering on an exodus for podcast well sure enough there fucking is <laughs> now the eternals have run into the marvel universe on several occasions it's important to note that the eternals after their 19 issue series plus annual was canceled had a lot of storylines dangling over the next year uh, over the next two years roughly 11 issues of thor would close out that storyline culminating in thor 301 the characters would appear here and there but for a really long Time until that Thor story, it was believed that it was possible that the Eternals was in a separate canon. Now, it did cross over and make its way to the Marvel Universe proper. The second volume that was written in 1985 was much less well received, though it was finished out by Walt Simonson. Big cool things. It wasn't until the 90s, which saw a series of two one shots the first, the Herod Factor which was followed up by a one-shot that pitted the Eternals against one of the X-Men's foes. Anybody have a guess as to which foe of the X-Men the Eternals
7: faced? Ooh,
2: ooh what year was this?
0: I believe it was 1998 to 1999, somewhere in there.
6: Are we looking for right answers or wrong answers only?
0: Wrong answers We are wrong. looking for whatever feels good in your soul. I'm going to
2: say Mojo.
6: Okay, I have a, I have an answer that I want it to be, and then I have an actual answer. I want it to be Arcade, but I actually think it was Apocalypse.
7: Yeah, I was going to say Apocalypse as well.
0: Kevo, I know you are X-Men adjacent At Best, but do you have any guesses? The Owl. A Daredevil villain. Terrific. Okay, so... <laughs> funny enough, you pick the Owl, but the Owl is the reason Apocalypse, the actual answer, exists... So when Wheezy Simonson was writing... So, okay, Wheezy Simonson took over X-Factor with X-Factor number six. Previous to that, the shadowy figure that had been controlling the alliance of the alliance of evil mutants that had been stalking X-Factor, you'd just seen a shadow. It was going to be revealed to be the owl from Daredevil. But when Wheezy Simonson was taking over for Bob Layton, she was like, I literally can't believe you would think that that's even possible. That's the dumbest thing. That, he cannot possibly be the owl. And on the
11: spot, she made up Apocalypse. Oh. I swear I didn't do that on purpose, but now I remember that story. Yeah. So the answer is Apocalypse. It turns out millennia
0: ago, the Eternals ran afoul of Apocalypse. So that gives us like a toe in footing to get a little bit X Menzy, but our X Menseys, as it were. <laughs> but I do want to point out, I do want to point out that there is another connection. Now there was a period in time when the X Men relocated. Can anybody name the city the X-Men lived in where they came up against the Eternals and, a little hint, the Dreaming Celestial? Canada. (laughs) Yes, the city of Canada. Yeah.
6: Santa Claus, Indiana.
0: (laughs) These are all winners. These are really winners. More guesses. I need them.
7: Oh, damn. I mean, the X-Men were in Canada for a while, weren't they? Montreal? Montreal?
0: I, I love all of these fucking answers Like really truly These answers are incredible Because the answer is San Francisco
7: Oh I would have the Marina Del Rey <laughs> oh my God.
0: So we have one vote for Lana Del Rey Wow <laughs> yes.
11: So wow. it was San Francisco <laughs> I want to go to these pride parade <laughs> If I was taking this seriously I actually would have guessed San Francisco <laughs>
7: I wouldn't have.
2: Liked it. Oh, because the Dreaming Celestial, because that's where oh. the uh, New Avengers are based. Not New Avengers, but
6: the current Avengers are based out. The West Coast Avengers. Yeah.
2: Cha.
11: And San Francisco does sound like a place that uh, that would have something called the Dreaming Celestial.
6: Wasn't that also where um, Bobby and Iceman went for the original um, champions?
0: I love this. Bobby, Bobby and, and Iceman. Ice. Oh, no, I meant... <laughs> Ooh. See,
6: I don't care about Warren that much that I literally <laughs> didn't want to name him. Wow. I just replaced him with a
0: reflection of Bobby. Oh, I mean, bo- bo- Bobby took a tube to San Francisco. So
7: <laughs> oh, my God.
0: <laughs> Bobby might have left his heart in San Francisco, but he left his jockey shorts on Warren's nightstand.
6: <laughs> and Warren said, Why are these on my nightstand, dude? Were you sleeping in my bed again? I asked you not to do this. Can you please or underwear? Boundaries?
7: Stop ruffling my nest.
0: Stop ruffling my feathers. So, um, okay. So I I have to bring this back to the show almost. So there's a (laughs) third volume. Now, when the X-Men met the Eternals in San Francisco was right around when a young writer who wrote a number of books that really meant a lot to me, and we have discussed several of them on this show, was working on the X-Men. The current writer of Eternals, Kieran Gillen, is well known for both his run on SWORD Mm -hmm. as well as his runs on Generation Hope and Uncanny X-Men. As I pointed out to him in a tweet one time, hey, buddy, you're the only guy who's ever gotten Uncanny X-Men canceled twice. Because he had the final issue of two different runs. And his response to me was, well, that's one way to look at it, thanks. So... Friend
2: of the pod, Karen Good job
0: there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when I would go to meet him at conventions, people would be like, are you cosplaying him? And I would be like, no, we're both bald men that wear glasses,
11: you fuck. Like, no, I'm the guy (laughs) from Gramophone. (laughs) 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 Phonogram
6: <laughs> <laughs>
11: No, I'm proud of that one. <sighs>
0: Gramophone. Okay, so so getting all back on trackish. <laughs> Marvel's backup Neil Gaiman Kieran Gillen is currently the writer on Eternals which is interesting because Marvel's previous Neil Gaiman Neil Gaiman had actually written the 2006 2007 miniseries now I had been buying this at the time because I was psyched because I had the Eternals and I like thought Jack Kirby art looked cool because everyone was shaped like a big mean box and I really (laughs) liked that about it and so Eternals number one comes out and it's Eternals one of six and then it's Eternals two of six and then it's Eternals three of six and then it's Eternals four of seven (laughs) and then then they double-sized the sixth issue and the first issue was double-sized in the first place so they were like it's six issues and then you get it and it's nine so (laughs) jesus that's
11: fantastic though
0: Yeah, so they released an ongoing follow-up, which was not quite the same critical acclaim or same emotional connection from audiences. It happens. And that had stunning art by Daniel Acuna, who, Raven, if you've never sampled Daniel Acuna's work, I really think that that's an artist you would connect with. Mm -hmm. Really breathtaking watercolors, really brilliant conceptual artist. And that brings us to today. So, guys, ask me. I know, like, if I know eighty percent of what there is to know about the X Men, which I don't, but we're making up a number. I know forty-one percent of what there is to know about the Eternals. So, go ahead if you have questions about them, ask me now. But only ask me ones in that forty-one percent.
11: My only thought is, at a, only a hundred and sixty some odd appearances, that's not a lot of knowledge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just like being mean to my husband. <laughs> You can't be mean to my husband. Don't you dare talk about my husband! (laughs) I've been
2: around around long enough I can laugh at anything.
7: So most of the Eternals are kind of based off of of Greek and Roman mythos, correct?
0: Yeah, a lot of them are based in very standard ideas of Greco-Roman mythology. Mm -hmm. A lot of the... Plural deity kind of everybody's got their own specialty kind of vibes going on. Yeah, yeah. It's of note that much of God's. They die and come back, die and come back. When they were first created by Jack Kirby, they were seemingly immortal. Mm -hmm. They have since become fucking eternal. So, like, in that way, the exaggeration of their goditude, their deification, has also stretched the way the Greek and Roman mythology has stretched over time.
6: Mm -hmm. Hmm.
11: I appreciate that, though, because too many figures use a name like the Eternals, and they're not eternal. And it just feels cheap. Yeah.
7: But yeah, uh, very
6: How
11: super can he be if he has to wear glasses
0: during the day?
6: Don't, don't call that Cyclops like that. <laughs>
0: I
2: I was going to ask about the relationship to what they call the machine and how it pertains to their ability to travel but as you pointed out, the fact that Jack Kirby went on to later create for DC the new gods, I'm just gonna imagine it's basically boom tubes
11: But for those of us that don't know what boom tubes are
0: Thank The machine you. is sort of this dimensional engine that perpetually keeps the Eternals coming back It was created by the Celestials What it is, where it's been house has changed over the years and i'm eager to hear the the narrator's perspective on what it's becoming now
2: so as kevo pointed out for me to point out for you uh, boom tubes are an interplanetary travel teleportation system in the dc universe and then mm-hmm. i imagine in that case to bring it back to what nico is talking about the machine is essentially the motherbox
7: yeah that's kind of a good way to Which is like the life-giving
2: sort of sentient ai force behind the new gods which would make the machine the force behind the eternals ta da i did it
7: mm-hmm. it's so a it's character kind of
11: unto like... itself
7: yeah. yeah it's sort of a character unto itself but it seems more like it's um a nanny program more than anything it it, it recollects mm. the body and it does diagnostics to make sure that the eternal that's being brought back is uh, functioning within certain parameters and not they haven't been corrupted from the last time they died or the last time they were resurrected and when they resurrect an eternal uh, sometimes they'll go back to a previous uh, iteration just to make sure it's not recreating something that was corrupted um, or, or that went way outside a deviation that went way outside where it's supposed to be because when they bring back sprite i believe it is um it says that it brought up back a a previous iteration because the last one was kind of murdery and (laughs) almost destroyed everything so they had to go to a previous copy
6: it's very similar to what they're doing on kakawa right now where they have backup Mm -hmm. copies and then they wake you up and they're like here you are you died welcome back Mm -hmm. um you're naked But the Eternals aren't naked, which is very um, nice. (laughs) I appreciate it. No, they
7: started naked.
6: Did they? Oh, yeah, I mean, Icarus oh.
7: started naked. Well,
6: Sprite didn't start naked. So, who, yeah, who is to decide who's, who's <laughs> naked and not naked? Do it's, you think they get a choice? It's twenty.
2: It's twenty twenty one. We have subverted objectification for explicitly white cis males. So, Icarus, you're you're falling on the sword. This issue, we gon' we gonna objectify that ass baby.
6: <laughs> well, he they try to make him fall on the sword, and he's like, "No, I didn't do this," and he headbutts
7: him. So. <laughs> yeah. Like, do you want me to break your nose? And he does. <laughs>